for you. Lord, that is the confession of our heart this morning, is that we need you. When so much is happening in our country and in our world that reveals just how broken we all are, Lord, what else could we pray than we need you? So we thank you that you are making all things new. We pray that now as we come to your word, that you would convict our hearts, that you would stir our passions for you, and that you would change our lives through what is written in your word. Lord, as we pray for another church in the area every week, Lord, I, I pray for Desert Springs Bible Church and Ryan Kelly, uh, their preaching pastor. I pray that you would be speaking through him and that uh, you would be stirring in the hearts of those people a desire to follow you and for lives to be changed. And so now, Lord, please open our eyes, open our ears, and speak uh, to our hearts this morning in the way that only you can. Amen. Go ahead and take out your Bibles and turn uh, in Mark to Mark 11. Uh, we'll be in uh, Mark 11, verses 12 through 25 this morning, continuing in our series, uh, Who is this Jesus uh, in the Gospel of Mark I'd like to go ahead and start. We'll just read through the passage. So again, it's Mark uh, chapter 11, uh, verse 12 through 25. Starting in verse 12, it says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, that being Jesus. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. <clears throat> so 
So the title of this morning's message is, Who is this Jesus exposing false religion? Uh, if you remember last week when we finished up, uh, we finished with verse 11 where it says that Jesus went into the temple, looked around, and it was late, so he left. And what we'll see today is what he does when he goes back to the temple uh, to address what he saw when he looked around. So if we were to summarize the main point of this morning's message, it would be this. A true follower of Christ will display the evidence of fruit inwardly, while a false follower will only display the appearance of fruit outwardly. Let me say that again. A true follower of Christ will display the evidence of faith inwardly, while a false follower will only display the appearance of fruit outwardly. So three things that we're going to see in the text this morning. The first that we see is the deception of appearances. The deception of appearances. Look at verse 13. It says, And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. So what you have to understand about fig trees is that in the early spring, which is what this is, it's Passover time, so it's around March or April, a fig tree will sprout leaves. And when a fig tree has leaves, that means it is also beginning to grow figs. And so this tree has the appearance of fruit. It has the appearance of fruit. If there are leaves, there should also be figs. They won't be ripe yet because they don't ripen until later on in the year, which is why the passage lets us know that it wasn't the season yet. But they should have still been present, even though they wouldn't have been ripe. And so from a distance, the tree seems to be fruitful. And this is informative for Jesus' time, because we need to stop right here and kind of talk about what was going on in first century Judaism. The Jewish people were the people of God, And they were to be a kingdom of priests who were concerned with God's holiness for the glory of God's name. And it had become instead a religion of self-exaltation, personal cleanliness, and self-righteousness. Many in the first century in Judaism would have had the appearance of righteousness, would have had the appearance of fruit. They would have looked very righteous, very devout, All the while in their hearts, they couldn't have been further from what God had commanded them to be. And if you remember back in Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees had gone so far as to make their traditions, the traditions of the religious leaders, more authoritative than the very word of God itself. You see, we have have people that had made following God a matter of appearance rather than a matter of heart change. And that sounds familiar, doesn't it? In Western society in general, and in American culture specifically, uh, the church has, by and large, become far more about appearance than about an actual pursuit of righteousness and obedience. We make sure that we look very good on Sunday morning. We make sure that we look our very best in our physical appearance and also in our spiritual appearance. And we make sure that we put on that front to make sure that everybody thinks that we're spiritual or that we're righteous, whether or not that's actually true on the inside as well. 
Some ways that we do this, we, we have our own language, don't we? We call it Christianese. All the words and the phrases that Christians used or use. How, how are you feeling? How are you doing today? I'm very blessed. I'm very blessed. Really? Because like just yesterday, you were talking about how much you wish you had that you don't have. That doesn't sound like you feel blessed. That feels like you feel discontent. Or, you know what? That sounds really hard. I'll pray for you. All the while, I have no intention of actually praying. I just want to sound like I'm spiritual and will pray for you. Church attendance. I fill that seat on Sunday morning every week. I look very righteous because I never miss a Sunday. Whether or not I'm even conscious of what's going on, whether or not my heart is engaged in worship or I'm responding to the message, doesn't matter. I fill that seat every week and so I look righteous. I have the appearance of righteousness. Involvement in ministries. Somehow thinking that being in a Bible study or being on the worship team or, or going on a missions trip or serving in this other area is somehow making me look righteous. And in doing so, we are so focused on our appearance. We are so focused on how we look. I see a lot of times where people uh, will give the appearance of uh, vulnerability, give the appearance of brokenness, give the appearance of confession of sin by confessing what they think are, are smaller sins, all the while keeping this monster hidden be- behind them. This, this giant life of sin that they just don't want anybody to know about. And so I will look broken, I'll look transparent by confessing these other small things. But I'm not going to tell you about this because I don't want to let this go. And all, all of this really just points to a fact uh, that we are oftentimes concerned about our appearance, how we look to those around us, and it is a denial of what we see next. And that is that there is a lack of fruit. It says that Jesus went to the fig tree and he couldn't find anything on it. It's just leaves. The, the appearance of this tree was completely misleading. It only had leaves. There was no fruit on it at all. Now, Jesus knew there were no figs on the tree. Let's, let's just make sure that we're all clear on that. Jesus knew. But you notice it says in verse 14 at the end, it says, and his disciples heard it. This served to plant a seed in the disciples' minds that he's going to come back to in verses 20 and 21. But, but as we already discussed, right, the, the Jewish people, it, 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 they were a people and a religion of appearance, of looking righteous on the outside, while all the while not truly following God on the inside. And so this tree is representative of them and of what was going on. You see, when we are only concerned with making sure that our spiritual appearance is up to par, we're not only producing nothing of value like this tree, we're not only producing nothing but leaves, but we are also letting this, this false religion of a righteous appearance just fester and grow inside of us. So what's the evidence that this is happening inside of me? What kinds of things are going on where I can start to know that 
I personally am more concerned with my appearance than with obedience and faithfulness to God. Here are a few. Indifference, indifference to my habitual sin. I do this thing over and over and over again, and I don't really mind it too much. I know the Bible calls it sin, but I'm not really too concerned about that. I am indifferent toward the things that the Bible calls despicable. Related to that is an unwillingness to repent of my sin. So maybe I recognize that it is in fact sin, and I shouldn't be doing it, yet I'm unwilling to leave it. Because repentance, let's be clear, repentance is not just confession. Confession is confession. Repentance is that I recognize that it's sin and I turn from it and go the other way. See, I can, I can confess something all day long without ever repenting of it. Another example is when we're quick to speak but slow to act. Here's what I mean. I'm quick to talk about wanting to change. I'm quick to uh, address the fact that there are things in me that should change. But I'm very slow to actually do anything about it. And, and I see this one happen. I see this one happen quite a bit where someone will come uh, to someone else and say, I need help in this area. Will you speak into this for me? Help me to see my blind spots here. What am I missing? What needs to change? And then that person says, Here's what needs to change. You're doing this. You shouldn't be doing this. You're seeing this totally wrong. You missed this in Scripture. Maybe you should look at this passage and see what it, how it would inform your life. And, and that person gives them all kinds of tangible ways to address the issue going on. And then the person doesn't do anything with it. Help me. And now I'm not going to do anything. Oftentimes when we are quick to speak but slow to act, it shows that we care more about our appearance. I want to come across as being humble. I want to come across as being broken. I want to come across as being teachable. But then when you teach me, I'm not going to take it and do anything with it. Another way is when we consciously disregard the commands in Scripture. When we come to a passage where God's word flies right in the face of how we are living, and we just turn the page. We say, no, that, that was a cultural thing. That doesn't apply to me anymore. Oh, no, that's, that can't be what he means, because if that's what he means, then I actually have to change something. And we just disregard the commands of God. See, ultimately, what's, what's happening is that while the appearance might look like something that's alive, what's going on inside is dead. To, to illustrate this, I uh, want to talk about something that happened last week. We took some of our students to Albuquerque Christian Children's Home uh, to serve them and help them out with some things and just play with the kids. And um, Some of the students were uh, working on, on a garden where there were some rose bushes, and I walked over and saw this one rose bush, and, and I was just kind of looking at them, and I saw this one rose, and I reached out, and I touched it. And I mean, it was the lightest touch on the side of it, and the rose just fell off. And I kind of did one of these, like, I'm just going to back up, and I'm not going to touch anything now, because clearly I have the touch of death. 
But what was really going on? Well, that, that rose was dead. It had, the, it, it had the appearance of being alive. It wasn't shriveled up. It was just a little discolored, but it, like, it looked like it was alive. But when I touched it, it revealed, no, it's, it's actually dead. Reminds me of, of uh, like Pharaoh's tombs or king's tombs where they find them and they're just covered in jewels and inlaid with gold and all this beautiful artwork and, and you open it up and up and sure enough, there's a dead guy in there. It's this beautiful tomb, but inside of it was death. And isn't that exactly what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23? When he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, when we live lives that are all about our appearance, that I need to appear righteous without actually seeking after obedience and faithfulness to God, I live a life of hypocrisy and disobedience. I live a life of hypocrisy and disobedience. So as a result of this lack of fruit and mere appearance, Jesus pronounces a curse on the tree. Look at verse 14. He says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. This is a final curse. This isn't a conditional curse. This is, you're done. You're done fooling people. You're done taking up space in this soil. You're done. No one will ever eat fruit from you again. And this is where Mark makes it, begins to make it very clear what this tree is meant to point us to. The tree, while it is very much a real tree, and this really happened right in front of the disciples, it serves to foreshadow what's about to happen next in the text. It sets us up to wait for what's coming next. See, whereas the tree had the appearance of fruitfulness, but no actual fruit, the nation of Israel had the appearance of righteousness, but no adherence to the commands or the standards of God. So when Jesus told the tree that no one would ever eat of its fruit again, he was foreshadowing the same kind of curse that would be placed on the temple religious system. The false religion of Jesus' day would be exposed and shut down. So we see this enacted uh, as we see the result of false religion. The result of false religion. Jesus walks into the temple, and, and just allow me to kind of paint a, a picture for you of what's going on, because like I mentioned last week, sometimes we read through passages and we just, we just miss it. We just miss the gravity of what's happening because we just kind of read through it. So you have to understand, first of all, the temple was the place where the presence of God resided. That was a big deal. That was everything to Israel. I mean, Moses even told God, is it not in your going with us that makes us distinct? The presence of God was everything. And the temple was where the sacrifices happened. It was where the ministry happened. It was where people drew near to pray because the presence of God was just on the other side of a few walls. 
And you had a, a large courtyard, and then you had kind of an inner area that within that was the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was. And so imagine, if you will, that this sanctuary were the courtyard, and just through a few sets of doors was the holiest place that you could possibly go. The presence of God was near. And you walk in, and this courtyard is filled with merchants and animals doing what animals do and making a mess out of things and racket and money being exchanged. And this wasn't just commerce. This wasn't just business. You see, this was the Passover, which meant that sacrifices were being made. And people would make very long journeys to the temple, sometimes so long that they couldn't bring their sacrifice with them. And so they would come to the temple and they would purchase an animal for the sacrifice. And these guys would mark up the cost of those animals, three, four, five hundred percent. Make lots of money. Or perhaps the person would bring their animal along and the priest would come and inspect it and they had to have an animal that was without blemish. And the priest would look at it and say, sorry, this animal can't be used. It's blemished. You now have to buy one of ours. Right? Twisted. Backhanded. Greed. Dishonesty. This is what's happening in front of Jesus as he steps into the temple. So now we start feeling that and realizing that this was, this was blasphemous beyond our understanding. This was, the gravity of this could not be overstated. See, the religious leaders were absolutely abusing the temple for their own purposes. And so Jesus, Jesus responds in wrath. Look at verses 15 and 16. We see that Jesus begins driving them out. Begins driving them out. He's not walking around just saying, hey guys, can you, can you kind of pack this up? Can you move this outside? He's livid. He is angry. He's saying, get out. No more. This will not continue. You are done and he's driving them out. It says he won't even let people carry anything through the temple. He is making sure that every single person, every single animal is gone. Now, let's really quick just address one thing. Oftentimes people use this passage uh, to justify their anger. Well, see, Jesus got angry. It's okay for me to get angry too. And I would say if you are angry at the holiness and righteousness of God being blasphemed, then yes, it is okay for you to get angry too. But let's just all agree that your anger at your spouse or your anger at your neighbor or your anger at your boss is probably not the same as Jesus' anger in the temple here. So let's not use this for something it's not meant to be used for. But why was Jesus driving them out? Was it just because he didn't like it? No, it was to uphold the holiness and the righteousness of God. Because God will not stand idly by and allow his name to be profaned in the name of our false religion of appearance. 
God will not stand by while we twist his commandments and turn them into something sinful and selfish. The holiness and the righteousness of God will drive out sin. Sin will never stand before God. His holiness will drive it away. This will either happen through repentance or through judgment. But either way, sin will never stand before the presence of God. There's no hiding what's going on inside of us from God by our outward appearance. When you pretend to have everything together, God sees right through it. And he's not fooled. When you embrace sin while putting on a show of righteousness, the only one you fool is you. Next, we see Jesus rebuking in word. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? See, Jesus is quoting two passages from the Old Testament here. The first one where he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer to the nations is from Isaiah 56, 7. The temple was supposed to be a place where people drew near to the presence of God to pray and to worship and to honor God. And instead, it was a place of noise and racket and dishonoring of God. Next, when he says, but you have made it a den of robbers, that's from Jeremiah 7, 11. The temple had become the opposite of what God intended for it to be. The people of Israel had taken something holy and turned it into something profane, and Jesus quotes the Old Testament to expose them because the word of God will expose sin When we take that which God has declared as holy and we make it something profane, God's word will expose it. When we pray in pretense with our heart not being involved whatsoever and we're just heaping up a bunch of words, God's word will expose it. When we embrace sin and reject the truth of God, God's word will expose it. And when we elevate our appearance as the highest object of our own praise, God's word will expose it. So you have to ask yourself this question, how does my life and faith line up with the Word of God? Or to put it a different way, are there things in my life that the Word of God would expose as being profane? Lastly, in viewing the result of false religion, Jesus Uh, we see Jesus being rejected by false followers. Verse 18, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. The chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders, the ones who ministered for, uh, for God, the ones who taught the word of God, the ones who were seen by everyone as the ones who were the closest to God, the ones who everybody would have said were following God. And they have the very Son of God speaking the very word of God in the house of God right in front of them, and their response is to seek a way 
to destroy him. See, when you're, when you're aware of your actions and you don't respond to the word of God through brokenness and repentance, you reveal yourself as a false follower of Jesus. See, you might have the appearance of fruitfulness, but there isn't any fruit. And some of you this morning need to hear that. Some of you this morning have lived your whole life claiming to be a follower of Jesus because you came to church, because you knew how to put on the appearance. You knew what to say and when to say it. But there's no fruit. You're as dead as these guys. And you need to know that your appearance is not what justifies you before God. It's what's going on inside of you. When my heart is hard toward the conviction of God over my sin, I reveal that God doesn't have my heart because I'm not giving him any authority over it. See, the religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. They had those passages memorized. They knew what that was. And they knew he was right. But they didn't care. The truth of God will be rejected by those who embrace sin. So when you think about the things in your life that could be exposed by the word of God, how do you respond? Do you respond in brokenness and a desire to repent and to be brought back to right relationship with God and others, to be faithful and obedient to the word of God because you want to follow Jesus? Or do you respond by hiding it deeper, covering it up more, holding on to your sin tighter, responding to the word of God like the Pharisees did by rejecting it? So then how do we make sure to not be like the fig tree, to not be like the religious leaders? Because this passage very much walks us to a place of saying, I, I definitely don't want to be like that. So then what, what should I do? Lastly, we see the fruits of true faith. The fruits of true faith. As they walk by, look at verses 20 and 21. Remember I said that what Jesus said in verse 14 was meant to plant a seed in their minds. As they walk by in verses 20 and 21, Peter points out the fig tree, which it says in verse 20 was withered to its roots. Dead. Done. It's empty. And he says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus could have said anything. He, I mean, he could have said, yeah, you're right. Look at that. Pretty neat, huh? But he doesn't. His response is, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Now, in a narrative like this, when a uh, person in the narrative responds in a way that makes you stop and say, why did he respond that way? It's because there's a very good reason for why he responded that way, and it's meant to draw you in. So what is faith? And why is it that Jesus would use that as the response to the fig tree? 
The simplest way that I can define it uh, is the way that I tell my students all the time. Faith is belief that leads to action. To put it a little more detailed, faith is when I believe in God to the point that I allow it to change how I respond to him so that I am now fully dependent on him in following him. Faith is when I, when I believe something about God to the point that I respond. It affects the way that I respond to him. It's not just something I know and just stays up here. It transitions and, and is, it, it affects me in a way where I live differently because of what I believe about God. And so why then is faith the answer to the curse that's placed on the fig tree? Why is it the way to make sure to not be like the fig tree? Well, because faith is necessary to come to a right understanding of who I am before a holy and righteous God. I, without putting my faith in Jesus, I do not understand who I am as a sinner before a holy and righteous God. If I want to honor God, if I want to produce fruit in my life, if I want my life to look like somebody who follows God, I first must start at a place of faith where I say, God, I realize that I am a sinner and I need you because I can't produce fruit on my own. Hebrews chapter 11 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why? Because it's our faith in the finished work of Jesus that truly cleanses us of our sin from the inside It's when I put my faith in Jesus as my Savior and my Lord that I am truly cleansed on the inside where I can truly stand before the throne of God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Not depending on a false, fake appearance. See, Jesus starts with faith here. Because if you don't start with faith, none of the rest matters. None of the religious observance or action matters if you don't start in faith. Faith is essential to a right response to God. So then, what is the evidence that faith is present? Let's look at verse 23 where we see that the first Evidence is trusting in the power of God. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now this verse is ripped out of its context and misused so often I I could scream. In fact, I think sometimes I probably have. This verse is not saying whatever you want to happen will happen. Let's make that very clear. Whatever you want to happen will happen is not what Jesus is saying. Look at the the verse. It says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up. That's passive. That is in the passive tense, which means someone else is doing it. Then it says next, it will be done for him at the end of the verse. 
Again, passive. It doesn't say whatever he believes, he will do it. It's whatever he believes will be done for him. Passive. Someone else is doing it. This is what is called a divine passive, meaning God is the one doing it. Now, along those lines of God doing something, tell me, will God ever do something that is outside of his will? No, he won't. Will God ever do something that does not bring him glory? No, he won't. So this verse is not saying, as the prosperity gospel false teachers would have you believe, that if you just believe, you'll get that promotion, or if you just believe, you'll get that bigger house, or if you just believe, then you will be free of your cancer or your other disease, or if you just believe, then you will live in health, wealth, and prosperity. No, what Jesus is saying is that when you come to something that seems impossible, trust in the power of God to accomplish what you cannot do under your own strength. But it's important that we understand that this is based in what he says in verse 22, have faith in God. Because if I'm not walking in faith and dependence on God, I won't know what it is that he wants me to do. I won't know where he's leading me, but if I am living in faith and he brings me to a place where I say, God, that's impossible. But I believe in the power of God. I can trust him. You see, I can't, I can't live frivolously and use my finances unwisely and rack up a mountain of debt and say, in faith, and say, you know, believing really hard, Become a bunch of zeros. No more debt. But I can in seeking to be obedient to God and be faithful with my finances, helping those in need, spending my money wisely, tithing like I'm supposed to, when I have a mountain of bills and I have no idea how I'm going to pay them. Say, God, I want to be faithful to you. I trust in your provision. I can't act like a jerk and then when people don't like me, just really believe that people are going to like me and then somehow that's going to happen. No, it's my fault that I got myself into that situation, right? But I can, trusting in the power of God, as I seek to follow Jesus and I seek to live accordingly and people hate me anyways, say, God, I trust you that this won't stand in the way of me following you and living as you called me to live. And the fruit that is produced by a life of faith is evident when no matter my circumstances, I continue to trust in the power of God. The next fruit that's evident in a life of faith is praying according to the will of God. Look at verse 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. You can often see the content of someone's face or someone's faith and how they pray. The deeper a person's faith, the more they will pray. If you have faith and are dependent on God as you follow him, you'll pray. 
because you're depending on God. If you don't pray, then it's likely because you're depending on something or someone else for your hope. Now, prayer could be and has been its own sermon on many occasions. So we're not going to spend a lot of time here. But Jesus does make very clear in verse 24 that God answers our prayers. He answers the prayers of those who have put their faith in him. So that begs the question, what about those things we pray for that we don't receive? First of all, if I pray for a new car and I don't get that, there's a good reason for that. It's because it's a selfish prayer. In James chapter 4, he says, you don't have because you don't ask. And you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives to spend it on your passions. See, when we ask for something selfishly, to, to fulfill our own sinful desires, it's actually very, very, very loving of God to not give us that thing because he knows that it's not best for us. But what about those things that aren't sinful to ask for? Maybe it's not a selfish prayer. Maybe it's a very good thing. And God still says no. I'm sure every single one of us in this room can think of something that you have prayed for where you were sitting there going, this is right, this is good. God, this would bring glory to your name. This, why would you not do this? And then it doesn't happen. What we have to understand is that God is a good father, which means that he doesn't give us what we want, even if what we want is a good thing. He gives us what is best even if we don't see it right now. He will give us what will bring him the most glory, what will fix your eyes the most on him, and what is most in line with his will. So then how should we pray? Well, Matthew helps to to give clarity to this in his gospel when, when he records Jesus' words, whatever you ask in my name, you will receive. Now, in my name, right, in, in Jesus' name is not a tagline to the end of your prayer. Right? I can't just pray whatever I want and then go, in Jesus' name, amen. And somehow God's like, oh man, he got me. Now I have to do all of that. And we have to understand what, what in, in someone's name is. When you went on behalf of a king, you went in the king's name. And you came in the name of the king, and your job was to say and do everything that the king wanted. No more, no less. If you went and did your own thing, you were done. See, to pray in Jesus' name is to pray for the things that Jesus would pray for. And if you want a a litmus test for whether or not your prayer is in line with that, change in Jesus' name to for Jesus' sake. Because if I pray a whole bunch of selfish prayers and then I say uh, for Jesus' sake, I'm instantly exposed. 
I wasn't really praying that for the sake of the name of Jesus. I wasn't praying that for the glory of Jesus. I wasn't praying that for the will of Jesus. I was praying that for me. No, instead it really helps to make sure that I'm praying how Jesus would want me to pray. See, instead of of praying for a new house, pray for contentment. Instead of praying for a new job, pray for a cheerful attitude when you're doing your work so that your work will now become something that brings glory to God and joy to your heart. Instead of praying that your relationship would be fixed by the other person repenting, pray that God would show you what you need to do to bring about repentance and restoration and healing. See, when you pray for the things that Jesus would pray for, of course he's going to answer that because that's what he would pray for. We always point to to Psalm 34 and delight yourself in the Lord and and he will give you the desires of your heart. Okay, I'm just really going to work on delighting so that God will give me that promotion. No, what, what that means is if I'm delighting in the Lord, then my heart is being changed so that I will want what he wants and I will pray accordingly. Now let's just be honest. Sometimes we don't want to pray for those things. I don't want to pray that that person's heart would be changed. I don't want to pray that my heart would be changed for them. I want them to pay for what they did. But you see what happens when we pray for the kinds of things that Jesus would pray for is our heart begins to change. Jeannie and I talk a lot when we're talking with couples that are having um, marital issues and struggles in their marriage uh, where we just we ask, have you prayed for your husband? Have you prayed for your wife? Well, no. You might start there. Because in doing so, it'll change your heart toward him or her. Because you'll begin to desire what God desires for your marriage. So if I should be trusting in the power of God and praying in the will of God, then it only makes sense that I would forgive others according to the mercy of God. Let's look at verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And Some of you may have in your Bibles uh, another sentence, otherwise you may have a footnote at the bottom that says, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Which Jesus says multiple times in all of the Gospels. See, because when we refuse to forgive others, when we refuse to remove the weight that we have placed on someone else for the debt they owe for what they did to us, we make it very clear that we do not understand the forgiveness of God that we have received. The fact that a holy and righteous God would forgive us of our sin is astounding because we have to understand the infinite offense of our sin against God. Every one of my sins is infinitely offensive before a holy and righteous God. It's not like 
it was just a little mistake. No, it is offensive to him. And yet, by putting my faith in Jesus, I received forgiveness. And then I would turn and refuse that same forgiveness to someone who committed a finite offense against me when I have been forgiven of an infinite offense. Now that is not to minimize the wrongs that have been done to you in this room. I know some of you have had some heinous, terrible things done to you, abuse and neglect and mistreatment, and you deserve for it to be called what it is, despicable and wrong. So I in no way want to minimize that. Instead, what what I'm trying to get across is just how offensive all of our sin is before God if our sin before Him is that much worse than those things that were done to us here on earth. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean that it never happened, nor does it mean that it never hurt. Forgiveness means that I no longer require payment for what was done. I no longer say, you will pay, and instead I say, God, I trust your justice. I forgive them. I will not seek their retribution. I will not seek for them to pay for what they did. Instead, I will lay this at your feet and trust you. And if you are carrying a burden with you this morning that you have been carrying either for a short time or for a long time where you have refused forgiveness to someone, I would encourage you to go to Jesus, lay it at his feet, trust him that he is perfectly righteous and perfectly just, that he will handle it the right way even if it means that he forgives it by his shed blood in the same way that he forgave you. Because I should, if I truly believe in the gospel and the righteousness of God that is imputed and, or given to us through Jesus because of his death and resurrection on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, if I truly believe in that, then I would want that same thing even for those who wronged me. But regardless, where I no longer say, I will get repayment, but I say, God, I will trust you and I will forgive because you have forgiven me. See, the fruit of a life of faith will be evident when you forgive those who have wronged you. Martin Luther said that legalism is the default mode of the human heart. Making our own rules, trying to beat the system, and putting on an appearance of righteousness in order to fool everyone and somehow think that we can earn our way. But Jesus makes it clear that that doesn't work. If you want to live your life by appearance, you'll live a facade that's filled with death. 
the only hope to avoid only having the appearance, not the actual fruit, is to have faith and to be dependent on God through Jesus Christ and to live a life that exhibits the kind of fruit that comes from a life of faith. Have faith in God, not in false religion. Have faith in God, not in your appearance before others. Have faith in God. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you that you see right through us. That you discern our motives from our actions so that even in the pretense of what we do, we can't fool you. You see our hearts and you know what's really going on. Lord, those hearts that that have been dead to you but have just tried to play the game and have the appearance of righteousness while never truly putting their faith in you, I pray that you would convict them and that they would come to a place where they are broken over their sin and seek to follow you and live their lives for you. To produce fruit for the glory of your name, not just an appearance. And Lord, even for some of us who do love you and seek to follow you, sometimes we fall into seasons where we are more concerned with how we look than how we actually are. Please have mercy on us, Lord. Please lead us back to you. Convict us in the areas we've strayed from you. And please draw us into you. That our lives would be faithful and produce much, much fruit Not for our glory, Lord, never, but for your glory alone. Amen.